Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 51 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am so glad that you're here. Today's episode is with Erica Worth, and I was very inspired talking to her also I laughed a lot because she is funny and um, we had a delightful time. I know you will enjoy a little bit of catch up before we go into the interview portion. Um, It has been bloody MFing hot in Oakland and I know it is hot in many places of the world. Um, It's just that in Oakland we don't have the ways to deal with this. We don't have air conditioning built into our houses in most places in Oakland, unless you live in like a condo or something. Um, And so every night our house has been like between 85 and 90 inside. And this is with all the windows open and the fans blowing it out when it finally cools down at night. It just hasn't been cooling down at night enough. So um, I have been a grumpy bear. I do not like heat. You may have heard me say that before. Um, I did get a little baby air conditioner for my office, and that has been fantastic. I can't run it right now because I'm talking to you, and uh, it sounds like an airplane is coming in to land in my office all the time, um, which has the added benefit of being this kind of awesome white noise. And when I keep the dogs in here with me when I'm writing, um, they can't hear the outside world, so they don't bark. So we have the plane landing in the office, uh, but no barking. So I've been enjoying working with that. Um, what else is happening? Let's see. I did plot the next uh, romance, and I've been working on that. So that is good. Um, I accidentally might have started to replot the thriller, which is why I st- Still don't recommend taking a proposal out on a book that is not complete, um, which is what we did. And it is not my favorite way to work. Uh, And and I I honestly don't know if I am stuck in, you know, middle of the book panic because everybody hits this point in the middle to the, you know, three quarter mark of your book that you believe it's just terrible. So one must replot the entire thing because all of your premises are crap. I can't tell if that's my worry or if it's true. So uh, I'm sending that off to my agent and she can help me deal with that. Um, Did a lot of that yesterday. Uh, Also, over the weekend, I finished my basic sailing class. Um, I almost didn't go because I was terrified. Friday night, I just started thinking about the winds that we had battled on the lake um, the week before and how hard it had been and how scary it had been. And I honestly wanted to chicken out. Uh, and just eat the money that I'd spent for the class and stay home and read a book. Um, and I didn't. I got up uh, with a hangover, might I add. Um, let's see. And went to the lake and sailed. And I'm so glad I did. And it, and I bring it up because it reminds me of something I feel like I do in my writing life a lot, which is uh, face the dread and then push it to the side. Uh, I had so much dread about going to the lake. I knew that I would be miserable um, and scared and I didn't want to. And I did it anyway. I just pushed it to the side. I did it. And I ended up having, no surprise, a fantastic time. It was great. I got signed off on my basics card. Um, I can now rent sailboats on my own, which is crazy. That's the, they shouldn't do that, but, um, but I can. 
And, um, and I just had a wonderful day of excitement and joy and, uh, heat. It was, you know, like 95 degrees on the water, uh, with very little wind. So I have now faced very, very high winds and very little wind. Um, someday I shall enjoy fine winds. Uh, there is another metaphor to go into there, but I will not go there now. Um, also I wanted to mention that I've been reading a book, which, I kind of like. It's called The 12-Week Year. Uh, It might be good for some of you who have problems getting to your your main work uh, or deciding what you want your life to look like. And this includes things like writing and or physical fitness and or your day job and or your relationships. Um, The idea of the 12-week year of compressing goals into 12 weeks and breaking them up and... um, looking at them as discrete units of, of time to um, act and actually get big things done in a shorter time frame without spending too much more time doing them is an idea I really, really like. I find that I'm already kind of doing that. Um, so the book is not quite as handy to me. I was looking for a brand new bullet because you know I'm always looking for the magic bullet. Uh, but you guys, some of you might enjoy it. Get it from your library. That's where I got mine. It's called The 12-Week Year. I'm always about their productivity tools and ch- tips and tricks. You know that. Um, so yeah, that's my catch-up for the week. Uh, I can't remember if I told you or not. I might have said it on my other podcast, um, The Pedal to the Metal. But the big thing I was looking forward to or hoping for, which was that my thriller was out with a publisher uh, requested by an editor who loved my work. Um, so we were really excited. We thought the thriller might sell to her, and then it turns out she's actually going freelance. So that was a disappointment last week. I think I dealt with it in my newsletter, uh, my writer's newsletter, not on the podcast. So that was disappointing to me, and um, that is actually why I was hungover on Saturday when I went sailing, uh, because I was I was really hopeful. I allowed my hopes to get up, which is a hard thing to do in this business because they are so frequently dashed and I'm pretty resilient. And honestly, I was almost relieved when we found out that she wasn't going to take the book because she's leaving the publisher Um, because that meant now I can finish it. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, So now I'm back in the middle of two books and uh, which is not ideal, but so fun. What a great problem to have. And when the book is done, then we'll take it out wide and uh, we'll, we'll, my agent will handle that because this is a book we're taking out. I'm not self-publishing it. Uh, so that's where I am with that. That's kind of a lengthy update with lots of little things. So let's jump into the interview with Erica Worth. I know you're going to enjoy it and I wish you very happy writing. Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write, and you'll also get my Stop Stalling and Write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. All right. Well, I am so pleased today to welcome Erica T. Worth to the show. Hi, Erica. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. I will give you a quick little introduction for those who might not know you. Erica T. Worth's published works include a novel, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, and two collections of poetry, 
Indian Trains and 1,000 Horses Out to Sea. Her collection of short stories, Buckskin Cocaine, is forthcoming. A writer of both fiction and poetry, she teaches creative writing at Western Illinois University and has been a guest writer at the Institute of American Indian Arts. She is Apache, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and was raised outside of Denver. I have just started girlfriend, um, and I'm just loving the language of it. So, well, thank you. Super, super enjoyable. I hear you have some dogs or a dog. I can hear. Yeah, actually, I should close the window here. You know, we have a little dog and she's basically, you know, she's barky, but she's not too bad. But they're like five billion little dogs in the distance. <laughs> we, we have the little dogs all around the house and we have three in the house. So I'm sure your dogs will talk to my dogs as we oh, go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, this will be part of it. <laughs> and then my niece is actually playing with her in the background. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Well, let me ask you then, You've got all of this published work, all of this awesome stuff that you're doing, um, this is about process and specifically your process, because I love okay. to talk to writers about their processes. What yeah. is the best time of day for you to write and where do you write? You know what? That has changed over time a lot. Ooh. I I used to be in my 20s and probably even my early 30s, like somebody who would obsessively write one story within the span of like, especially at night, it would really be like at ah. night, I'd go for hours. And if I didn't finish, it would really bother me. And I'd start the next day. But even though I had never been in a partnership and or had kids until very, very recently, um, I kind of got assimilated into everyone else's schedule. And so now I'm very like nine to five. And then I want to like, be done with it, you know, because I'm a professor and then you're like, you've got your grading, you want to get it over with and have your night. And so I'm kind of maybe age, like I'm kind of not as much um, a night rider. That sounds very 80s. <laughs> yes, you need a car called Kit. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I loved that show when I was a kid. And, um, so I guess I'm kind of a morning rider now. So maybe that would be like your companion show that I'm on because, yeah. you know, I sound like I get up and I... You know, I kind of wake up, I might read an article or two, and that's when I try to grab my time. Although, you know, I travel a lot because my boyfriend's in Colorado, and I'm touring off and on, I have different gigs, and then I teach. I have a full-time, face-to-face, Western Illinois University professorship, you know, in the corn. Mm -hmm. So I go back and forth a lot. So I'm doing some writing when I can sometimes. Like, oh, I can grab two hours here, I can grab two hours there, and I steal time whenever I can. So even though I prefer the morning these days, sometimes it can be any time whenever I get it. So if you're given your druthers, where's the best place for you to write? In all honesty, it is in my in my home at my desk. There are yeah. times when I need to break it and I'm like, eh, this is the wrong space. I'll go to a coffee shop. But really, it is at my desk where I do the best work. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wish so, yeah. mine was at my desk. That's my goal someday. My desk is it's good for getting like everything else done except writing. <laughs> well, because it's probably, it becomes your work desk, right? Yes. And you yes. know what? I have the privilege and that's less so now. And that's why I very strictly operated like my office. I would grade there and I wouldn't take any of that home, even if I had to grade until eight o'clock. And then my desk desk was for the creative writing. So, cause I think that's what happens. It's like you come to your desk and you're not free anymore. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. And I also teach and I'm always grading at the desk. This is where I grade. So that's yeah. very good point. And how do you, how do you write? How do you compose? Are you longhand or computer? With poetry, I think I started longhand, but I've always with prose and I've even like the nonfiction people have like, like 
dragged me kicking and screaming into nonfiction. Like I was, I was like, no, that's just, how do you make the story go? You know, um, <laughs> like it's made no sense to me, but now all prose because I go too fast. I have to, and always have had to do it on the computer. I admire people who do long form because I know it supposedly taps into um, some part of your brain that isn't, isn't tapped into when you're, when you're typing, but I'm too fast. And I've, I've just got to be on the computer for prose and I pretty much don't write poetry anymore. So that's what's really, that's what's sad. yeah, I think it died. It's almost like, like bits and pieces will crop up here and there, but like, you know how, like if you're gay and you're like, I used to date girls, you know, and you're like, that was a long time ago. It almost is like the same thing. I'm like, I used to date poetry, but I'm, I know who I am. <laughs> and, but every once in a while it does crop up like a line and you'll be like, oh, hello. You know, that's but really interesting. Because, yeah. It's just really strange. It's like, it's, it died. And then, um, part of it I think is because the, the prose ate it, like in the last mm. the collection of short stories, the poem, the, I borrowed some poetic technique for it. So I think mm. that's why yeah but now it's kind of layered i've never heard anybody say that before that's really interesting and how do you refill your creative well when you're running dry you know um i you know it's funny i i just must not be on the same wavelength as other people on social media because everyone was really exploding about some blog by some writer who said if you don't write every day you're not a writer and i'm like who the fuck said that like i who, who, who is this you know because I, I, I want to go check that out so I can laugh at it. Yeah. I, got, I was like, who is this who said this? that made everyone so mad. It's actually really funny. Um, you know, like, I've missed this particular blow up. I'm going to go look for I it. Know. Like, who is this? So, you know, I, for me, I allow, like, there isn't a second of the day. I don't feel guilty when I'm not writing this. I'm, I'm just built that way. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, I just have to have a contemplative day and that is going to be all right. And I'm going to ruminate a little and I'm going to, cogitate a little and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to read and, and then I'm then later I'm going to write but I'm always I always feel guilty when I'm not so I know I'll come back to it you know there's that so. uh, Gloria Steinem quote that I love writing is the only thing that when I'm doing it I don't feel like I should be doing something else <laughs> yeah you know yeah that's I, right. I have yes. always felt that way um what is the absolute best or worst writing advice you've ever been given <sighs> that I've been given? Well, I think every writer, this is, I'm going to say something incredibly typical, but one of the most irritating thing, things I, I think you'd agree, right, is when someone's like, why don't you write about that? Ugh. You know? And I write, it's I, yes. because I don't, and thank And you it happens for, every day. I know. At I'm least like, every week. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I particularly want to tell a biologist, why don't you do physics because I am interested in that. That interests me. So that's why really, are you doing myth science? That's a so perfect boring. analogy, right? <laughs> that's nice. You're an entomologist, but what about actually being a gynecologist? Why don't you just that's, do that? Yeah, that's more useful. You know, <laughs> the world doesn't need to know about bees, but they need ladies to be healthy in the nether parts. Why don't you do that? <laughs> Oh my gosh. The next time I'm asked that in the, in the fashion that makes the hair on the back of my neck rise, I'm going to spin it like that. Just, just like that. Although it is, it is, it can be a, it can be a funny joke. My wife always says to me, she'll come home like at least once a week. She go, you know, you know what you haven't thought about doing? I think you should write a bestseller. 
Yeah. My was auntie like, sat me down. Yeah. No, and it's, you know, she just, she goes, my auntie too, she's like tiny, but I'm terrified of her. Like she's so scary. And I was told my mom, I'm like, someday she will kill me. And my mom says, Don't say that. That's terrible. And then she's like got the little bit of a gleam of truth in her. Why she knows it's true. But yeah, like my auntie sat me down one time. She said, Erica, let me tell you how it works. I'm like, oh, okay, best selling auntie. You know, she's like, you write what people want. Then you write what you want. I'm like, is that how it works? I'm like, how, what is what people want? You know, that's what we should all do. Like all writers should get together and write like a 5 billion page novel called what people want. What people want. And you know what? I would, I'm pretty darn sure I I could manage to fail at that too. (laughs) Yeah. You're supposed to. You're supposed to fail at it. God, I don't know what people want to write. No one knows what anybody wants to to read about. Yeah. I only know what I want to read about. Yeah, exactly. No, and thank God. You know, at least you know you don't know. You're not like ghosts at it. That's it. <laughs> Only ghosts, you know. I hate when people do that. I'm like, okay, I know the last 50 novels you read are about ghosts, but how about a demon, even? You know? Just a little bit of an open mind. Yes. Yeah. I love, I love that. That's funny. Your partner, though, I'm sure she just loves, or your wife, she just oh. loves when she just wants to. Like, and now it's, just a, now it's just a joke. And I'll agree with her. Yeah. I'll, and I'll, and every time I'll be like, oh, you're yeah. right. I had not thought of that. And in fact, I'm going to give Oprah a call. You know, yes. I hadn't. That's... <laughs> exactly. Sweet yeah. what, what secret writing tip of awesomeness did you discover the hard way? It's a really good question. I think ultimately I had a lot of trouble with plot. And teaching creative writing over the course of 10 years, I actually con- I convinced myself for a long time, oh, I'm terrible at plot, I'm terrible at structure. But when I'm, re- when I'm uh, you know, working with my students' work, I realize like I'm not because I'm like, oh, if you just make him do this here, then that will make sense later. Mm-hmm. And I'm really good at it. It's just that I actually hate to say this because it's really poetic. The worst advice I probably ever got was EL Doctoro, you only have to like, Writing a novel is like driving at night. You only have to see the pavement in front of you that your headlights are illuminating. Right. Something to that effect. Yeah. I'm misquoting. And I was like, yes, that's the way it should be. Because I felt like somebody who plots it out like J.K. Rowling, I'm just not that guy. I don't, I admire what she does. I actually read all the Harry Potters because my um, stepson, who's nine, finally was into reading because of Harry Potter. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll read them all. And, you know, it's like watching TV. It's just so like fun, you know? Right. So, but I really had to admire what she did with plot, but I know she plotted out like exactly there were charts. Mm-hmm. And for me, my brain would be like, this is math. I don't want to, you know, but I think that I should have probably allowed myself a little bit of that unromantic, unintuitive, uh, not character, just hundred percent character driven because, you know, like kind of plotted out just a little bit kind of thing, because I'm never going to be the explosive plot guy. And I, and I don't think, I think when people have a great idea and they don't finish something, it's because they're not allowing their characters to make natural decisions. Mm-hmm. But when you're writing a novel, because it took me 10 years for the first one, because I just was horrible at plot and structure, because I, I didn't realize actually I was capable of it. I just needed to sit down and really think about it, be unromantic, uninstinctual for at least five minutes, you know? It's, it's not easy to think about it. And, and and I, and I always, and I always realize that too, when I'm talking to people about this is that it's, it's not fun because it's not fun. It, that kind of heavy lifting in the brain is yeah. annoying. 
I don't want to yes. do that. I want to be in the flow. I want to be in the magic, but it, it helps yes. so much. I learned, yes. I also learned that the very, very hard way. <laughs> you know, and I'm in academia, right? So even though there's definitely a newfound respect for, you know, I hate it when people say genre fiction, right? Because in the end, literary, they can talk about literary as a genre, but that's not true. You know, what was passing for literary, what people imbued with literariness is has been realistic fiction traditionally right right like things that could happen every day so to me literary just means depth of theme you know attention to language and complex characterization but i think when you're around so many people like really super highfalutin and a lot of people are like i'm an experimentalist i'm postmodern i've got lots of brand labels they they don't want to believe in that yeah because they believe yeah. anything that has a coherent plot must be commercial and therefore bad and I just don't think that's true. I yeah. love that oh. you don't think that's true. I am such a big proponent for excellent commercial fiction with incredible characters and, and depth of plot and depth of theme yeah. and all of that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Would you would you mind giving us a quick craft tip of any yeah. sort? I think that the biggest <laughs> I mean, since you know, I did do the PhD school. For a long time, I regretted it deeply. I'm like, I have all this debt, and I live in the middle of the corn. What's the point of that? And I realized how hard it is to get a tenure track job, and I'm like, I better sh shut up, you know? Um, so I was like, okay, I live in the corn, but I have a job. That is yeah. unionized. You know? Wow. Um, unions matter, yeah, you know? Yeah, Right? I mean, what, what our ones aren't unionized. So um, I got a bug in my hair. That's good. Um, so in any case... <laughs> I think there was a part of me who finally realized like, oh, no, actually, there's a scholarly kind of part of my brain. And, and I wrote a couple articles called The Fourth Wave. And The Fourth Wave just was about Native American poetics. And then The Fourth Wave on um, Native American fiction was actually in the Writer's Chronicle. And when I, when I was talking about them and them was like, in some ways, like what, you know, when Native American critics, for example, who are just entirely intellectual and they're like, well, these are these differences about that you know about Native American text, and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. I want to see what that is on the page. And so, just asking myself that question was really good because I realized when I did that, and I you know I talked to these people who self-proclaimed experimentalists, I would be like, okay, but where is that on the page, and why? What does it matter? And I realized it's a form and content question, right? Right. Like you, if you <coughs> have like um. Like, for example, the first story in Buckskin Cocaine is what someone might call experimental because it's very language-driven, and there's a lot of repetitions because, like I said, I sort of borrowed from poetic technique, and mm -hmm. so there's a repetition, and um, they're basically a series of interlinked vignettes, and it's because it's, you know, there are four personalities inside, housed inside one, um, and this person's, like, really unraveled all the time, and these personalities beat up on each other really hard. And there's almost a psychotic kind of um, effect to this. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the reason why this works as a series of interlinked, interlinked vignettes, it would never work work in this traditional action, plot, dialogue, description, balance that I particularly prefer, actually, the older fashion stuff, right. um, is because that would not get a hold of this person's mind. This person's mind is very fractured. So that's the content. And I tried to have the form to match, you know? So that's, I think it's like trying to belong to a school, like I'm this and be, my friends are that. You should ask yourself, what am I writing and what's the best form for this content? You know, 
which is actually, I mean, it's such a good metaphor for life too. You know, what is the best content and form I can bring to my sister's birthday is going to be different from what I bring to the classroom is going to be, you know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. Excellent. It's your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything. Um, what job will I not get fired at? <laughs> Speaking of jobs on really bad days, if you couldn't be a professor or a writer, what would you be? Mm. You know, I realized that I, I got this this sabbatical thing that people get right a few years ago, and that Ooh. was like I just know what now why people do write like you know F it I'm just gonna my nieces in the background <laughs> I'm just gonna write um, vampire you know books whether I like it or not because you have all this time to write and that's it and it's amazing so in some ways I feel kind of like I just as I know myself would not exist at all if I were not a writer a professor it's nice and it helps in various ways it's a great job. But that could part of me could not exist, I realized, very easily during my sabbatical. And it would not change who I am at all. Yeah. Um, but if I absolutely couldn't be a writer and I had to live my life, and granted, I think a lot about, you know, the life my grandmother had to live. She was like, you know, had an arranged marriage. She was a janitor. Um, she did all sorts of interesting, also hard, hard jobs. But so I, you know, I mean, I would have a lot of privilege that she doesn't, but I mean, I went, when I was younger, I remember the first thing I wanted to be was inventor. Um, so that's interesting. I vaguely awesome. thought about being a park ranger, which, you know, I'm not sure. I think I'm a little too femme for that, if I'm honest with myself, even though I grew up in the country. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, it's a tech, you know, like, uh, <laughs> so somebody else burn it. Um, <laughs> let alone a bear. But I have to admit, there are times, and this is going to sound really, really kind of funny, where I realized that I would I would be perfectly happy if I had extremely good math cap capabilities, and I would still be able to be who I am if I could be a theoretical physicist because I absolutely love that so much. Why? So I'm extremely. I feel like you know um, a lot of for a lot of Native people, and I think there are reasons for this the idea of like religion and spirituality being separate, there didn't need to be this huge separation because there wasn't the same sense of oppression, mm -hmm. you know, of knowledge. Although I'm sure a lot of people would disagree in many communities, you know, but I think I'm very interested in the way in which um, instead of like physics basically says it's all part of the same reality. And that's kind of what pagan religions do. It's all part of the same reality. It's not sure. this separation. Yeah. And then if you're going to say that, there's still incredibly huge mysteries that are like quantum physics is insane. And so is astrophysics, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just insane to think about gravitational waves being felt here three that recently they had them from 3 billion light years away because two black holes merged. That's, that's basically that to me is God. You know, if there is a God, that is it. So I think I realized like, in some ways, this is going to make me sound a little salinger ass, except with the whole storing his pee and drinking it thing. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> you know, like I, he, I think he realized like writing was a doorway to God. And then he kind of like went crazy or, but he also kind of went towards Buddhism. And I don't see myself in the same way, but I can say that if I had any mathematical ability, that to me is, is knowing the nature of reality. You know what I mean? And I think in the end, that might be what I'm after if I'm, if I'm honest with myself. Well, I'm, so. seeing, I'm seeing a connection with everything that you do then with the writing and 
with that particular desire, you're looking at the contents of the universe, right? And when you were a kid, you wanted to be an inventor because you wanted to make things in the universe. I really, yeah. I really think that perhaps you've been the same person with the same goals right. this whole time. And that's just me guessing from knowing you for 15 minutes. But, right. <laughs> but that's not, Except those are... the park ranger thing. That was, I think, like, I just want to get out of academia because actually it's really kind of off out there. <laughs> you know? I always wanted to live like one of those fire spotter, you know, up in a tree. There's nothing to do all day except for look for, look for, look for forest fires. Lighthouse keeper. The first yes. time when I wanted to be a writer, yes. the first thing that occurred to me was lighthouse keeper. And then I found out they're automated. I know. Bridge keeper. I also wanted to be a bridge keeper. There is one bridge near us that has a house on top of it. And the guy lives there and all, his, his one job really? is to raise and lower the bridge over in Alameda four times a day in the summer. Yeah. He's... <laughs> I'm like, why bother with residencies? Get a terrible. bridge keeper job. Yeah, because you have all these people trying to hook up and be cool. And, oh God! Our bridge keeper. I I don't know if he's still if he's still the same one. So I don't want to. But but he was yeah. he was an inveterate drinker too. So he wasn't actually yeah. very good at raising the bridge. But you know he had one yeah. job. Yeah, well, you kind of you don't have to be really inclined. Yes, you're really inclined, or otherwise you would be like, God, I'm bored. Yes. I'm going to drink now. Going to so. have a beer on duty. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's why you took it. <laughs> so you can be alone and drink. Um, if you were, if you were starting over as a new writer today, what would you tell yourself as your young self writer? You know, that one was really hard because for years, what I regretted, the MFA wasn't quite the big, big deal that it was. Mm. And I was also super chicken because both my parents had come from working class backgrounds and we were basically middle class when my dad was a drinker. And so he liked to spend his money on ladies and get rich quick schemes and booze. So we were middle class, but mm, you know, mm -hmm. and so um, they, they did not want me to be a writer. They did not want me to be in English. They did not want that. So I would say, Oh, you know, no one's going to tell me how to write, but um, I wouldn't take creative writing classes until I'd had a couple of shitty poems published. And then in, mm. during my PhD, I took a ton of workshops and my dissertation was half creative and I was publishing more. But there are times I'm like, you know, I should have had more tools in the toolbox earlier on. And right at the end of my PhD, I did get into University of Montana, which I didn't go because they didn't give me financial aid. And there have been years when I deeply regretted that or deeply regretted not doing an MFA in New York. Um, but sometimes I think that maybe I was right. Maybe that I kind of instinctually knew I am a very deeply self-directed person. And I have to say there was, um, I'm, I'm going to say his name and quickly, but Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. Who, who, by the way, is an also bot for you. If you look oh, at yeah? your, if you look at your book on Amazon, the also bot yes. is Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. I, I don't, don't ask. That's great. I saw that. That's fantastic. Hot tub something. Hot tub. <laughs> Donahazi is better. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? I don't, that's weird. And it was for, for, for the poetry too. Like, who is buying Indian trains and like hot tub summer, the video? Like, I love and the why vagaries so of, the, of the Amazon algorithm. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's extremely mysterious. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I interrupted you about Donahazi. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. But yeah, I saw him interviewed and he was like, you know, in my twenties, you know, there were so many writers in my thirties, there were lots of writers, but it started to narrow down by my forties because you, you can't, you literally cannot, you, you have to be 
like a bulldog to withstand the rejection, especially yeah. if you're queer, especially yeah. if you're a woman, especially if you're a woman of color, especially if you're a woman of color and you're not writing anything that's familiar to audiences at all, mm. which I kind of enjoy that. Like, I'm like, ha ha, <laughs> you know, like, here's something else, you know? Yeah. But, you know, people either, for Native Americans, they want to hear, right, um, I, I'm very poor and I'm from the reservation, but I got out. Um, they want to hear traditional, actually, I'm, I'm not from the reservation, but I went back and traditional and I found my traditional self and here's how you too can be, you know, a traditional Indian, right? I just don't, I don't recognize any of that. I don't, you know, I'm not from a reservation, but even my friends from reservations are like, what, what is this? You know? So I think that's the thing you just have to be. So sometimes I wonder like, you know, maybe I was right. I should have just, just kept on going like I have, you know? So so, yeah. I, believe, I believe in our, our deep down intuition. I really, really do. And yeah. the way we, we, the way we get to the places we end up at are, is the way we're supposed to get there. Personally, I'm with you. I wish I hadn't put 50 grand into an MFA, but <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I regret, I regret that, but I'm glad that I'm here now. So yeah. yeah. Cool. But you shouldn't have to regret it. I mean, it's unfair. It's just utter, utter bullshit that we pay for educations. I'm so angry. Yeah. I'm so angry for my students. Sometimes like every once oh, in a while, yeah. like every year they're like, you know, oh, this year, you know, we're telling you it's like 7,000 for tuition. I feel like literally every time I tear up and I feel choking feelings for them. I'm so mad, you know, what? 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 that's not cool. I know. You know, that makes so, you look, anyway. that, I think that makes you a good teacher. <laughs> I hope so. I just, oh God, I just makes me want to punch everything. <laughs> Before you punch everything, what would you like to plug right now? What would you like to tell us about? Where can we find you? What should we be looking for? Well, I started writing regularly for Roar, the feminist magazine. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'm writing nonfiction. Like, it, and it kind of makes, I'm going to say something that I hope doesn't make me sound like a freaking douchebag because <laughs> I just was always like, oh, nonfiction. And I'm sure I just had very incorrect opinions about it and didn't, I didn't get exposed to the right things, but I have, I have only perfected my craft of nonfiction because I was solicited to write it. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's something, but I have to say it's become something that I am more attached to than I realized. So, but in the end, like I'm much more always going to be attached to fiction. And the thing that's coming out is buckskin cocaine, which is, you know, the sort of seedy underside of the Native American film world. It's all these personalities who are just insane, mm. who I like kind of knew when I was at the Institute of American Indian Arts and hanging out with the film people. Yeah. And so that's coming out June 15th and it's available like on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, you know. Actually, and I think that your episode will be going out right about then. So in the show notes, I'll make sure I put all the links up. It's got a fantastic title. I can't wait to see it. I know that's my friend Sherwin Bitsui suggested that. I'm like, it's I don't know what to call this insane thing. You know, it's fantastic. It's grab. Really it. It's grabbing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, sure. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. That's going to be awesome. Thank you. They and honestly writing it. I was like, who is going to publish this thing? And yet the first person I sent it out to took it, you know, but honestly, it really is so weird and about such like a part of Indian life that people do not care about. So I was like, no one will ever publish this, but actually it got, all the stories were taken almost immediately. And so, yeah, there's some energy to that thing. That's fantastic. Um, I can't wait to see yeah. it. I can't wait to pick it up. Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. you so much for spending this time with me and with the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a joy talking to you. And I find, me too. find you incredibly inspiring. And now I want to go write something awesome. Oh, so. good. <laughs> I will do it. Well, I will. <laughs>
Thanks, Erica. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. All righty. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.